Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to finish up our discussion of Trisha Rose's Black Noise, Rap Music and Black Culture in Contemporary America. Now before jumping into it, if you're new here, welcome. I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts in an accessible way so that, you know, either you don't have to read it or I could help you if you're trying to read it. Um, and if you want, if you're, if you're new here, like, share, and subscribe so you can see new videos every single week. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy to see mostly pictures of my cats. If you want to help me out, obviously like sharing and subscribing helps, but you can also help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure. If you found this on YouTube, you can find it in podcast form where there shouldn't be any ads. Or if you found this in podcast form, you can find this on YouTube where I sometimes release videos. And that's fun, I guess, if you're into that. So yeah, I don't want to waste any more of your time. Let's start uh, from chapter three here, titled Soul Sonic Forces, Tech Orality, and Black Culture Practice in Rap Music. So she begins this chapter with an anecdote where she was speaking with a dean of a music department about her interest in black music. And he kind of laughed and said, well, that's, it's not really music though, right? Like it's, he, he, he liked the idea of the project, but he's like, rap isn't music. And in, in her head, Rose could recall how, uh, slaves, enslaved people within the United States weren't allowed to play their own music, their own uh, music from their African heritage, because it was considered to be like not real music it was considered to be like loud and annoying to the male um the uh, slave slave owners so some of the ways that rap is cited as being like not real music is that it doesn't rely on proper harmony it's just like rhythm uh it doesn't use melody it's just uh like the same beat in the background over um uh essentially poetry so she says that Rap's distinctive bass-heavy enveloping sound does not rest outside of its musical and social power. So same can be said of its sampling and rhythms that borrow from other artists, much like the technology used and reappropriated for the black community. So like that technology that was being used by uh, independent labels that were taking um, for pretty cheap, getting this technology from these big labels in the same way sampling is kind of taken from other artists, which is a very complicated issue. Uh, in no way do I want to minimize how sampling is, is a difficult issue, but Rose gives a very interesting account of it. Now, just to kind of say, sampling is when you take, in very rudimentary terms, you take a part of one song and put it in your song, which to me explaining that to anyone who isn't already familiar, you'd probably think, oh, well, that's just stealing. And in a sense it is, but it's, we have to nuance this a little bit and it demands, I, I guess, a more thorough engagement with the distinction between appropriation and borrowing. But before we kind of get into that, we have to first talk about why rap isn't really considered music. That is because it's often positioned as a rhythmic style against classical music's harmonic style where classical music and its emphasis on tonal functional harmony for Rose is quite narrow. Uh, and there, I think she, there's a lot of truth to what she says here. It is comprised of 12 tones, primarily arranged in either major or minor sequences that most often end on a kind of dominant or closely related note to the key, where if you listen to people who are uh, within kind of European uh, sensibilities considered to be 
important musical figures in the history of music, you'd get like Mozart or Beethoven or Bach or whatever, where the musical notes and the musical bars are in some sense, a lot of the time quite boring. Like they always end, uh, you know where they're going to end when you hear them begin because you know what key you're in once you kind of get it in your ear and you know what the last note should be to the point that if, you know, I was playing some scale and I just omitted the last note or I was playing a bar of music and I just omitted the last note, you would probably fill it in with your own ear. And I'm saying that in these terms because um, Theodore Adorno who I'm sure many people are familiar with, uh, wrote this one essay about how like jazz isn't really music, essentially. It's more complicated than that. But in short, he's like, jazz isn't really music because it's just a kind of consumptive habit. doesn't actually uh, do anything for the human listener. When he makes that case about jazz, that when jazz uses kind of atonal notes or uses kind of chromatic notes that sound kind of jarring. And I don't want to get too much into music theory because that's, I don't, I don't really know a whole lot about it. Uh, but jazz uses notes that don't necessarily fall within the scale that is being used. They'll more likely fall in relationship to the specific chord or note that's being played by accompanying uh, sounds or, or um, musicians. So for example, let's say you were playing in the key of C, which would just, let's just imagine that for the sake of uh, playing, you don't find the note F sharp within a C scale. Within a C scale, you have C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C. Those are the notes. Now, let's say within the C scale, you were playing a 2-5-1. Um, it's kind of a silly example, but let's just say a 2-5-1 in C, which would mean you were playing D, uh, E, I think. Doesn't really matter. And then C. Now, on the, uh, I guess, on the D note, on the D chord, you could be playing a whole slew of different notes, like F sharp, for example, like um, G sharp, I guess, I think. And in that case, you could be playing these notes that fall outside of the key of C, but are actually belong to the key of D if you are playing over this D chord. And it's a lot more complicated than that. And please don't, any music people out there don't eat me up too much here but that just reveals that there's a lot of possibility and you of course you get that classical music but the point that she's making here is that it is it's restricted and the, all, the only point she's trying to make is that the same kind of uh, leniency that is given to classical music can be applied to rap music as well like it is incredibly complicated not only in its poetic function which is difficult in itself to come up with like good rhymes, but also the musical function, the kind of musical quality uh, that goes on underneath. It's just that for the most part, music scholars in the first place don't consider it to be a legitimate style and therefore haven't given it any kind of real thought. And for a more, uh, I guess, deep look into this, there's um, a YouTuber named uh, Adam Neely that has a video called, I think it's changed names a few times. I think it, it used to be called why why music history is racist or why music theory is racist uh but now it's like why classical music is like white supremacist or something like that but it, it it's cool to check out it you could probably find it if you just looked up adam neely but it but it's super interesting so for her for rose 
African melodic phrases tend to be short and repetition is common. And this is really true of like a lot of uh, uh, rap music where what goes on in the background in terms of the rhythm or beat stays pretty well the same throughout the whole song. Now, that there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, within like um, orchestral music that accompanies uh, many different films, be it Disney films or, you know, classic cinema, there are certain tropes that repeat depending on the situation where the same two notes might be played in two different films that both depict some kind of like stressful moment where, or like how in Jaws, for example, if anyone's seen the movie Jaws, probably the most simple uh, musical composition being the dun dun, dun I sing it wrong because I can't sing, but the kind of dun 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 that, that thing, two notes, was probably the most iconic thing ever. So the fact that something is simple which I think some people tend to assume, doesn't in any way detract from its musical uh, validity and its kind of musical, um, the, the potency of its musical content. So she here uh, employs the work of Christopher Small, who argues that whereas classical music follows a linear sequence, begins with establishing notes, the overture uh, that will eventually be resolved, African rhythmic music and its repetitions collapse the past and future into what he calls an eternal present. Hip-hop then gives us a peek into the meaning of time, motion, and repetition in black culture. So they think here, we, or we might be able to think here about how black youth have no future in these settings, or their future looks quite bleak, and little attachment to history, which is especially the case of uh, black youth who you know, being the descendants of uh, slaves, don't have a connection to their past and in many cases don't actually know where they come from. So repetition can be used here, like in the case of a lot of rap music that relies on repetition of the, the rhythmic sections of the background music to provide a sense of stability, maybe. And interestingly, the same could be argued of the European musical form. And it tries to hide this uh, with illusion of progress, linearity, etc., um, that's just like essentially veiled the fact that there's a lot of repetition within these genres, and we just cling on to the kind of big names, forgetting, of course, that there were thousands of musical composers at the time that were just producing garbage, but we just cling on to the few that really stand out. But any, anyways, Chris Small continues that, uh, or is writing against figures like Adorno and Jameson, who regards such repetition as symptomatic of late capitalism. So for Jameson, it's just, uh, you know, repetition within rap music is the product of late capitalism and postmodern society that doesn't see any possible future, just continually reproduces the same. And they fail to acknowledge for uh, Small and how, as well, Rose picks this up, that this is actually very much a part of Black culture. It didn't just emerge with postmodernism. So black people may reproduce other sounds with sampling and looping uh, with various technologies, of course. It's not an easy thing to do. But this does not necessarily mean that they're being duped by capitalism, that they're just submitting themselves to the kind of capitalist uh, culture, culture of reproduction. They can be used in ways that affirm black culture priorities that sometimes work against market forces, in fact, like these, these strategies that might appear to be pro-capitalist are in fact can actually oppose that. And certainly this is true in the way that sampling 
that is taking from other musicians disrupts a logic of ownership of private property. However, sampling is obviously tricky business. Like no one's going to deny that sampling is a difficult thing to to grapple with because it is often criticized for being a means to copy other music. Rose insists, however, that sampling is not nearly as easy as those charges assume. Like it's not easy to take from songs and put them in your own songs, let alone to have the foresight as to what will sound good and what won't. Because sampling isn't necessarily just taking like lyrics from somebody else. It's like taking the drum track or one little part of a drum track from one musician and taking like a musical cadence from another or like some kind of other rhythmic section from another and maybe like a vocal track for like a background chorus sound of another artist and so on. Sampling often involves carefully piecing together numerous bits from songs and making them sound good, which is already difficult in itself. But as a sociocultural explanation, many of these people weren't privileged enough to learn how to play like instruments in their youth. Like not many of these uh, urban black kids were going to be able to learn how to play the clarinet, you know, this hundred dollar instrument at the time that, you know, that you would need tons of free time, which they probably didn't have to learn and to pay for. And this non-use of instruments has also contributed to the idea that rap isn't real music. And the same happened with jazz before rap for refusing to accommodate white ears, you know, refusing to accommodate um, kind of Eurocentric scales and, and chord progressions. So quite simply for Rose, it's that these white listeners don't understand it. And because they don't understand it, they say it's not like real, it's not legitimate. And here we can think of the way that Walter Benjamin, for anyone that's familiar with Benjamin's work, applauds reproduction as getting rid of or, or allowing kind of society to move away from those strict gatekeepers of knowledge in art production, be they museums or priests or whatever, and how we can get away from that with this logic of reproduction that is played out in sampling. Rose is clear, though, that artists should be compensated if their music is sampled, uh, but she is suspicious of the kind of impetus for disciplinary for disciplining uh, sampling and saying like, oh, it's, you know, black people are just stealing from other artists and so on. Most for her, if not all of the money would actually go, they wouldn't go to the original artists, they would go to the big record labels. So it's not that sampling is good or bad, but she's suspicious of the kind of concern about it because it's really only in the service of profiting the big record companies rather than actually helping out the people that these people claim to be concerned about helping them out helping out the original artist so in that way rap is a complex amalgamation of oral tradition rhythmic adherences and technological manipulation and should not be naively reduced to like anything be reduced to being like postmodernism or some post-industrial you know political demonstration and that puts us here into chapter four, Prophets of Rage, Rap Music and the Politics of Black Cultural Expression. So she starts out by saying that under social conditions in which sustained frontal attacks on powerful groups are strate strategically unwise or unsuccessful or successfully contained, oppressed people use language, dance, and music to mock those in powers, express rage, and produce fantasies of, of subversion. 
These forms produce, in her words, a kind of communal basis of knowledge about social conditions, communal interpretations of them, and quite often serve as the cultural glue that fosters communal resistance. So dominant voices try to police and silence these kind of counter, uh, these subversive forms of, of speech. So borrowing from James Scott, she calls these the dominant, the dominant voices, the kind of public transcript, while she calls the subjugated voices are an example of the hidden transcript. Rap is a hidden transcript in that it uses cloaked speech and disguised cultural codes to conduct symbolic and ideological warfare. So it doesn't, doesn't comply to the logic of naming and ownership that is found in like the dominant, or in this case, the public transcript. They engage in discursive wars of position to within and against dominant discourse. So the potency of these hidden transcripts is threatened by absorption into mass media. However, even in these popular public spheres, rappers are constantly taking dominant discursive fragments and throwing them into relief, destabilizing hegemonic discourses and attempting to legitimize counter-hegemonic interpretations. Now, given all this, Rose is clear that rap music is not always counter-hegemonic. It is patriarchal and decidedly heteronormative and homophobic, and in a lot of cases as well, anti-Semitic. However, some can and have uh, been said, the same can and has been said of like the blues, punk, and many other fe feminist movements as well um, that have silenced uh, black women. So rap, like these other kind of subversive styles, is just another potentially uh, problematic domain as well. And in her stressing feminists, we're going to get to this in a, a, a little later, in her stressing feminism, she's saying that uh, feminists are essentially have excluded black people, have excluded black women from their discussions, especially at this time. Uh, and dare I say, it has been getting a little bit better, albeit still has a long ways to go. Feminist movements were even though they claimed to be doing something good, were foreclosing opportunities for black people. So even this, even this uh, group of women, in, in the case of white feminists that thought themselves to be doing a good thing, were actually doing something quite bad in the way that rap music is both a way to call attention to oppression and at the same time is not like, is no angel. So male rap music primarily calls attention to police government, and dominant media apparatuses, whereas women rappers are much more likely to call attention to limitations on female independence, identity, community, and sexist character of black heterosexual relations. So in, in to return to kind of uh, rap music, not specifically done by uh, black women or Latina women as well. In America, where the war on drugs promised to rid the streets of harms, black youth are often painted as an enemy to the American way of life. Rap calls attention to these dynamics. Take these lyrics by KRS-One, for example. Killing blacks and calling it the law, and worshipping Jesus too. You were put here to protect us, but who protects us from you? And I obviously didn't rap that because I didn't want to embarrass myself. But these lyrics force us to ponder the distinction between law and morality. Sure, it is legal for cops to kill black people with due cause, apparently, but is that morally right? Like, is it morally right that someone with barely any training can wield a gun and has the, you know, 
is given the privilege to decide in a moment whether or not someone should die. So police use a number of strategies to justify interviewing black people like on the street and pulling them over, mostly just like profiling. They target older model cars, for example, people with baggy clothes who could be like seen as to be concealing weapons, maybe people who play loud music, etc. And these, this, I guess, these strategies of profiling overrepresent black people in the criminal criminal justice system, where it's not that white people or black people commit more crimes than white people, but that they are being targeted more. Uh, they are being selected more for the possibility that they've committed a crime. So white criminals have an easier time being criminals, while at the same time, law-abiding black citizens have a harder time following the law because they're always seen as having done something wrong, where there are just endless, endless, endless testimonies of black people within all settings that are just many times in their lives will get pulled over by the police for absolutely no reason. And that is something that I have never experienced in my life personally as a, as a white dude. Like, it just never happened. But that we have to come to terms with this fact that there are these forms of profiling that occur at a very alarming rate. Now, this is depicted pretty well in Public Enemy's music video uh, for uh, Night of the Living Basshead, sorry, where MC Light breaks into a Wall, Wall Street offices where brokers are doing cocaine. And this flips the script on drug use and turns the paternalistic eye back upon the dominant class, where this so-called war on drugs was really just a war on the black use of drugs, not on drugs that were being used by uh, real estate mongols and, and uh, big shot bankers that were using cocaine like, like it was nobody's business. That wasn't the real problem. The real problem was black people. Now, tech, or new technology, I should say, allowed rappers to respond to these social injustices very quickly, making them pretty topical counter-hegemonic forces. They were able to really call attention to what was going on. And the specific component that discerns these kind of black grievances or these black modes of subversion from their white counterparts was that white people... Or was that, uh, in the case of rap music, rap had a very firm connection with black culture generally. So the kinds of concerns that black people are raising within rap music is speaking to these, this power from a history that has culminated into rap music at that moment, but that communicates an experience that is felt in their entirety, the, in, in the entirety of their lives. And this, of course, one of the things that they're speaking to is the way that black bodies are policed more closely than white bodies. So Rose recounts how uh, her own concrete experience where she was uh, attending a rap concert in which the black audience members were searched quite aggressively before they were allowed in. And there was, at the time, this was I think this was in the 80s, when um, it was very difficult for black artists to actually book uh, to book arenas, to book shows, halls, or show halls, places where they could put on concerts, because insurance companies would refuse to insure these 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 halls because of fear of you know black audience members getting out of control, which of course had no basis in reality at all. It was just um, it was just essentially this profiling and this prejudice against black audience members that speaks to a deep seated fear of 
organized black people as though if there are too many of them in one place, they might uh, want to subvert the dominant order. And of course, fears about large-scale black presence were compounded with like NWA's song, F the Police, uh, which certainly didn't help the situation. And it caused quite a stir among police, politicians, and FBI agents. Of course, it's not just rap music that experiences this this form of policing like absolutely not uh rose acknowledges that like heavy metal music is something that is also heavily policed in like concert spaces and how it's something that is recognized or people worry that like moshers are going to get out of control the difference though is that that policing only happens on primarily white bodies in those spaces that attend those concerts only in those moments Whereas the kinds of policing that Rose describes for this one concert she was attending doesn't stop when the people leave the stadium. Like they're going to be policed, continually be be policed in that way outside of the stadium. And the same was seen historically with the way that like jazz music was policed and where it was allowed to be played and who was allowed to attend, how many people were allowed to, to attend. And for Rose, it seems like the outrage at at black crime in these settings or in these arenas is less about concern for safety and more about the fear of a mass of uncontrollable black people outside of their ghetto neighborhoods where journalists and politicians close their eyes to those instances where they they don't care about safety, really. What they care about is uh, their own spaces where they share. They might go see their own concert at this place for like Fleetwood Mac or something. (laughs) they don't want these spaces to be overrun and taken over by these undesirable black people and even in cases where crime actually is conducted let's say within an arena setting like it takes it would require a whole great deal of nuance around it to look at why this crime may have taken place but instead media uh, is just more interested in demonizing the entire population without any real Uh, interrogation of the impetus behind any possible real crimes and the real nuance to criminality is found in some rap lyrics actually that actually take these questions on and acknowledge systemic uh, factors like for example KRS-One's Stop the Violence and we can see this as well in many other uh, rap artists like uh, Immortal Technique, Ghetto Boys that, that really call attention to these forms of oppression. But that puts us here into chapter five, and which allows us, or titled uh, Bad Sisters, Black Women Rappers and Sexual Politics and Rap Music, in which now we're going to really consider the way that uh, women within rap are figured not only to their male counterparts, but to the dominant uh, kind of race and, and, and class at the, at the time and even up till today. So while rap generally reveals and communicates systemic forms of oppression, Women rappers reveal that uh, th- they reveal that and more in their own music, and they also reveal themes or explore themes of sexism and sexual politics. And Rose is curious about the ways that Black women rappers work within and against dominant sexual and racial narratives. So their music is then in dialogue with sexism of male rappers, sexism of everyday life as well, and of anti-Black feminism and and slut shaming. They're rap uh, these women rappers are calling attention to all of this and in many cases their music upholds ironically 
the very dominant institutions that they are also critiquing, like heteronormativity and the family, the nuclear family, I should say, and the church, for example. So we must confront and embrace these contradictions. And similarly, many male rappers like Tribe Called Quest use their voice to call attention to sexism. But then there's Ice Cube or Dr. Dre, who who essentially call for violence against women um, and actually commit violence against women. And in rap scholarship and in rap itself, there's often an erasure of women's contributions where you know, when discussions of rap often take place, it's just tacitly assumed that we're discussing male rap artists. Of course, uh, erasing Queen Latifah, Salt and Peppa, you know, just to name a few. So by ignoring women's voices in rap, we have been ignoring women's lived social and political exigencies, their kind of, uh, their pleas that they communicate with their music. And we hear this uh, ring out with the words of, uh, Angela Davis makes this case as well, uh, but essentially by ignoring these women as rappers, we thereby ignore their musical their music, and through that we ignore the, the kind of political messages that can be found within their music. So women's rap is often or often then illustrates women's navigating um, the kind of harsh terrain of patriarchy sanctioned abuse that you know they live through every single day. Take, for example, Salt and Pepper, Peppa's 1986 Tramp. Uh, and Rose is clear about the song Tramp that it isn't exactly a revolutionary song because it still affirms monogamous hetero relationships. It just flips the script, essentially calling the man a tramp, not the woman. And it's in that that it, it does hold its kind of political, its, its subversive potential. And even though many of these women rappers reinstate or reinscribe a patriarchal order the words are still viewed with contempt within the rapping community from outsiders and whatnot as as being like whining or complaining and not being uh, seen as legitimate or being uh, a legitimate concern even though they aren't like for rose it's like it's not like they're saying anything super revolutionary like they're just essentially saying the same thing about men as is being said about women, but they're still being called out in ways that men are not, revealing uh, more of this dynamic of sexism at play. So in that, it, it must reveal that to some extent they, they're doing something politically meaningful if it's annoying the people with power. But then on the other side of the coin, we have, um, we have women like or rappers like Queen Latifah who very directly convey a political message. They aren't just trying to like flip a script, so to speak, uh, against oppression. And one example is her uh, Ladies First song. So salt and pepper and are, are transgressive in what they're doing, even though it's not like revolutionizing the entire playing field. They are just flipping a script, so to speak, but it's still transgressive. So one of the ways that it's transgressive is, for example, them dis disrupting the cultural emphasis on skinniness as a sign of beauty and how they emphasize their asses in order to uh, kind of provoke people, to, to make men think like, uh, to kind of reclaim, I should say, reclaim their own bodies and what they see beautiful about themselves. And this has certainly transformed into twerking, which is um, at least something that is... <laughs> been appropriated by white women since Miley Cyrus a few years ago, but was something in which black women were demonstrating their own uh, sexuality for themselves. 
But obviously, this is all very complicated, especially when we consider the ways that this self-presentation can be taken up to be like, um, to be commodified then by men, to be consumed by men. But the, it's obviously very tricky because the problem with that argument is saying that there's no way women can do anything for themselves because it can just be taken up by men as though they don't have any autonomy in their own actions, which is obviously very problematic. And there was a whole reactionary uh, kind of a reactionary response on the part of a lot of male rappers who would say that like women with big asses shouldn't be trusted because they're going to just like take all your money or they're just going to like screw you over in some way. Uh, and so we're just revealing that the, it, this complicated thing that's both transgressive and also yet still might feed into a general logic of uh, bodily commodification, of objectification of women's bodies that is difficult. It's difficult to negotiate, and it's one of those contradictions that we have to hold uh, firmly. So in the course of, I guess, doing the research for this book, Rose was interviewing rappers like Salt and Pepper, uh, or Salt from Salt and Pepper, uh, McLight, and Queen Latifah, and she asked them all how they felt about feminism and if they identified as feminists, to which they all said no, primarily because they associated feminism with white women, which was really especially true at that time in the, the mid-80s, late-80s, early-90s, um, which was very, uh, obviously very true. But they also felt uncomfortable with some of the anti-male sentiments that were found within feminist, uh, the feminist movement at the time. So what was essentially a, one of the explanations that could be had because of this is that uh, anti-maleness was a privilege that could be held by white women who were beginning to be welcomed into uh, job roles. And so they could actually earn money on their own. Whereas for black women, no such possibilities were open. Like black women were being excluded from jobs left, right, and center. They couldn't just leave uh, the one person that was would be making money. And so there is that possible explanation. But in any case, they felt like feminism was just a, a white woman's hobby. That was until, of course, Rose kind of described the way that she herself identifies as a feminist and what it was about feminis feminism that she clung to as a, as a black woman. And to that, she says that they were very like welcoming of those ideas. They just didn't like the title feminist. So women rappers of color have to be listened to in their own terms and not constructed as an extension of, of white women, like as though women, uh, these women rappers are just part of women as they are spoken about by white women, when in fact the, there are some severe dis, uh, differences that have to be respected and, and acknowledged. And that puts us here into the epilogue in which I just want to read a little section that I think captures the timber of the, the book well. Uh, to send us off on. So via commercial industries, new technologies, and mass media outlets, rappers attempt to rewrite, rearticulate, and revise popular national and local narratives. Rappers negotiate these narratives from a peculiarly contradictory position of social vulnerability and cultural clout. By this I mean that Although rappers are some of the most prominent social critics in contemporary pop culture, they remain some of the most institutionally policed and stigmatized. Long after their emergence as prominent social critics, several male rappers continue to be stopped, searched, and questioned as if they were still regular young black urban men. Well-known female rappers continue to find themselves sexually degraded and marginalized by powerful and not-so-powerful members of the music industry. 
just kind of leaves us on a somber note there. But it, I think it really communicates the extent to which these forms of oppression continue, even though she was writing this 20 years ago, 25 years ago, maybe more. Um, but yeah, that more or less covers it. I hope you like what I did here. I found this book really interesting. I was really happy that, I, that I'd read it. And it, I didn't do it justice. I think you really have to read it yourself to really grasp what Rose does here and, and really all of the evidence that she presents and the different anecdotes she has that are all super interesting. But yeah, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, and uh, catch you next time.